Today we are in Esther chapter 5 and 6. Beginning in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the, en- opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter, not scepter. <laughs> that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther had asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king had said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let let gallows fifty cubic feet be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged Upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh two of king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? 
The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told the king, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a crown is set, royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes of the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that has happened. Then his wife, then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that as your people, we get this privilege of hearing your word. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who works in our hearts to display the beauties of your word and the beauties of Jesus. And we pray and we ask that that work would be done amongst us today. Lord, open up our hearts to see you more clearly. Lord, we come from all sorts of, Lord, walks of life, and we've all have experienced our own things this week. I pray that you would focus us, that you would allow us, Lord, to hear what you have prepared for us. May your words remain, may they go and bear much fruit. Lord, and whatever I have to say that is not of you, Lord, may they fall to the ground. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, Esther is a very fast-moving story, um, and in our text today, it's getting faster. The scenes are changing quickly. Every chapter leaves you on a cliffhanger. Um, and these, this text that we're looking at today is probably the most uh, comical and the most ironic part of the Bible. Um, last week we saw the response of God's people to the announced genocide of the Jews. Um, 
Haman's royal decree went through the empire, and the, and the decree was to basically kill all the Jews through the kingdom. And the Jews, we see, were in shock. They were mourning, they were fasting, they were weeping, lamenting. Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes. He is crying bitterly on the streets of Zusa, and he calls Esther for help. He tells her, basically, you're the queen. You go to the king and beg him for favor. Beg the king to spare us. Esther says, it's not that easy, Mordecai. There is a law that says if someone goes to the king without his request, without the king summoning them to himself, that person must die unless... In very rare instances, a scepter is stretched out to them. Ultimately, Esther agrees to go before the king. And Esther's last words in chapter 4 were, I'll go, and if I die, I die. And so Esther is facing an almost impossible task. All the odds are against her. As she enters the throne room, the king is on his throne. It's known that his counselors would be with him. The guys who would help him draft the laws. Also, like um, there were excavations in those areas, and um, there was a lot of images that were found from this era that would depict that with the king in his room, there would be an executioner with a sharp axe ready to execute at the king's command. The law is clear. No one is allowed to come before the king unless they're summoned. And we read, when the king saw Esther, she again won favor in his sight, and he extended the scepter to her. Last time we read about Esther preparing to go before the king, she was taken from her home. She was being prepared for a year. She was fed special food. She was treated with spices and oils. um, And she excelled. She complied. She was beautiful, and that propelled her to the top. And And when she was presented to the king, she won favor in the sight of the king. This time is different. Now she is coming to the king on behalf of her people. Instead of being fed, instead of being pampered, she's coming off a three-day fast. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried fasting for three days, but usually on the third day, you look a little different than you did on the first day. On top of that, She's spending these three days thinking these might be her last. The anxiety for her people, for Mordecai, she's anxious for her own life. And I'm sure that played, that had an effect on how she looked before the king. And so as the king extends his scepter to her, we read right off the bat, the king asks Esther, 
what is it, Queen Esther? What is going on? What is your request? And Esther requests him and Haman to come to a feast. Just imagine you're Esther and you're faced with this task to beg the king for favor for your people. How do you do this? Do you go directly? Do you, do you just walk in there and ask him directly? It's the king. He's surrounded by the counselors. And the king has to, in front of his counselors, has to walk back on his word. How do you go against the law that was put together by Haman, the most powerful man in the kingdom, second to king? And so we see Esther decides not to be direct. She invites the king and Haman to a feast, maybe a less intimidating place to make a request. And so the king agrees. And at the feast, the king knows that this dinner or lunch party isn't all that Esther wanted. And so he asks her again for the second time, what is your wish, Esther? It shall be granted to you And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Esther replies, My wish and request is for you to come to another feast tomorrow. And I will tell you what my real wish and request is. (laughs) And so we may wonder, and I always wondered, What is going on? What are you doing, Esther? Why aren't you asking? Here's your chance. The king agreed to come to your feast. Why are you flaking? Why are you hesitating? For the second time, he's asking you what you want. And as you read uh, commentaries of theologians today... Uh, Jewish rabbis, they will say that she isn't flaking. What Esther is doing is she is wisely putting herself in a position where the king would grant her the request. Notice twice already, he promised to fulfill her wish. Twice. And by agreeing to come to the second feast, where she will tell him the actual request, he is preemptively, basically agreeing to give her what she will ask. Esther is outwitting. She is outplaying two of the most powerful men in the Persian Empire. Notice she's not direct. She's not demanding. She's not coercive. She's not deceitful. She's doing it subtly, carefully. She is meek. She's respectful. With all of her words, she is honoring the king, and yet she is getting her way. Esther gets to promise, gets the king to promise her to fulfill her request three times. She's building suspense, and it is hard for a king 
to go back on his word after he has promised her three times in three days to fulfill her request. And so, in chapter 5, verse 9, the scene changes. Haman is returning home from the feast, and we read that he is glad, he is joyful. And as Haman is going back home, he walks past the king's gate and he sees Mordecai. And as usual, Mordecai is still not bowing to Haman. He is not trembling before him. And instantly, in a moment, Haman's joy, Haman's gladness turns to anger. Have you ever had this happen to you? When you're so happy, you're jolly, and then you see that one person. The day's ruined. All the joy has evaporated. And we read that he's so angry he had to restrain himself. The anger was about to turn violent. And so Haman comes home. He gets all his friends and family together, and he begins to brag to them. He sits them down, and we see here that he recounts to them his fortunes, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions and the advancements. Haman says, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king to the feast, come with the king to the feast that she prepared, and tomorrow I am also invited together with the king. And then he says these words. He says, And yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. That's how much he hated Mordecai. And so his friends, his wife, give him advice and say, Why don't you just kill the guy? Why wait for months for that law of the king to kick in so that you can kill him? Why won't you kill him now? Build a gallow and hang him. As second to the king, Mordecai would not have a problem convincing the king to kill Mordecai. He would just make up a story, hang him for treason. And so that night he builds a gallow, 75 feet tall, for all to see. In chapter 6, we read that that same night, for some reason, by some chance, unexplainable, the king can't sleep. Maybe he's wondering what does Esther want? Why is she in distress? Maybe it's the construction of the gallows that Haman is building in the night that that's keeping him up? We don't know. The reason is not given. He just could not sleep. And also, for some reason, by chance, the king chooses to do the most boring thing. He calls someone to read the government records. It's like suffering with insomnia and asking your wife to read you your tax records. It's no fun. And so, in those records, he finds something absolutely shocking. 
Mordecai, the guy who saved his life, was never rewarded. He asks, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Where are the records of that? There's nothing in here that tells us how we have rewarded him. And the answer is nothing. Nothing has been done. The guy who saves your life was never rewarded, never honored. This was like five years ago. And so for a king at this time, it would be bad politics to miss this opportunity. Kings were looking for chances, for opportunities to reward loyalty to them, especially when someone saved their life. This was a major oversight. And as the king is trying to figure out how to reward Mordecai, here comes Haman, bright and early, walks into the palace to ask the king's permission to kill Mordecai, the irony of this. And so the king hears Haman, he calls him, and he asks him what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And as we see, he, the, Haman thinks, obviously he's talking about me. Who else would it be? Haman had everything. He had riches, he had power, but he didn't have the crown. He didn't have the royal robes. He could not ask for a higher position. He's already second, but he could ask to bask in the glory of the king, and that's exactly what he does. And so throughout this story, what we see about the character of Haman is that he craved recognition before man. He craved praise. He craved for others to notice his significance. And so the plan that he proposes to the king takes this to the max. He makes sure that he is going to get the most recognition and significance before man. He says, Basically, honor him with a royal parade. Take him through the busiest street in the royal city. Sit him on a royal horse. Clothe him in king's royal clothes. And place the king's own crown on his head. This is as close to being a king as Haman could ever get. Haman coveted significance. Haman coveted recognition. And so the king says, you know that guy who sits at the gates? You might have met him. His name is Mordecai. Do to him exactly as you have said. Don't miss a thing. Imagine the shock on Haman's Haman's face. He has to show this honor to the man he hates, his enemy, the guy he just came to ask to 
kill. Haman has to give Mordecai what Mordecai has failed or did not give to Haman. Haman hates Mordecai because he did not bow to him. He did not give Haman the praise and honor. And now Haman has to go through the streets of Susa crying out, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What an irony. It's comedy. Your number one enemy, the guy you just built gallows for to hang. Now you have to honor him in front of everybody in the royal city. Imagine Mordecai's friends who tried to convince Mordecai to bow down to Haman. Imagine them seeing this scene. And at the end here, we read that Haman rushes home. He is mourning. He's embarrassed. He's covering himself. And so as we study this book, the first five chapters, with every scene, scene, things got worse and worse for the people of God. First, Esther is taken. Then Mordecai gets into issues with Haman. That results in an announcement, an announcement to destroy all Jews. Chapter 5, Haman is building a gallow to hang Mordecai. But in chapter 6, we see the beginning of the great reversal. From now on, evil against the Jews is going to get undone. The fortune is going to be on the side of the Jews And it's going to be against the enemies of God. And here, in this pivotal point, notice where the reversal starts. It's not Esther. She doesn't start this reversal. Even though she plays a crucial part in the story. It's not Mordecai. He's not the hero here. He gets praised and then he goes back to sitting at the gate. There is no hero that we might expect to begin to turn things around. The great reversal begins with the sleepless night of the king. And here we have to notice, we have to see the providential hand of God on the move. Even though God is not mentioned once in this story, he is the hero of this story. It's like standing in a house and looking outside and watching the trees bend down under the wind. You do not see the wind. You do not feel it blow. But you know it's wind. This is exactly what's happening in this story The king did not have a sleepless night by chance. The king did not request to read government records for the first time in five years by chance. 
He did not fail to reward Mordecai by chance. This was the hand of God. It was the providence of God orchestrating the salvation of his people. On their own, all of these scenarios, they might not be mean, they, they, they might be just regular, ordinary events happening in the life of people. But as we see them combined, something amazing is happening and only something that God can do. These are not coincidences. And it is so obvious that even those who are not God's people are taking notice. Here's, here's what Haman's wife and, and, and Haman's wise friends tell him. Here's what they tell him in Esther chapter 6, verse 13. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. They are telling this to the second most powerful person in the empire who has the ear of the king. As they hear the story of Haman, of what happened during the day, they didn't reassure him, you're fine, Haman. This is a coincidence. They are piecing the story together. They know the history between the Amalekites, who Haman is, and the Jews. And history shows that when God stepped in to fight for his people, nothing could stand in the way of God. When the Amalekites would take over Israel, when the people of God repented, and when God would begin to rescue them, nothing could stand between the Malachites and God. As they hear the events of the day, the enemies of the Jews, even they see the hand of God. They are seeing God stepping in to fight for his people. And so they say, if Mordecai before whom you begin to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome, overcome him, but you will surely fall. So as Esther is planning to prepare her second feast, she is probably fretting on how to express her request to the king as she's maybe even praying, worried, Will the king grant it or not? Between these two feasts, God is the hero. He is doing something awesome. He is fighting for his people. And so we have many lessons to learn from this story. First is the call to trust in the providence of God. In this story, God is not acting directly. He's not acting forcefully. Like Esther's subtle approach to the king, so is the work of God. 
God is not fighting for his people with the ten plagues like he did in Egypt. There is no parting of the Red Sea. There is no lightning and thunder. There is no fire from heaven. There's no miracles. And yet at the same time, God is orchestrating the ordinary, mundane moments of life life, into this extraordinary story of salvation. Even those who are not the people of God took notice. So the question is for us, as we deal with the anxieties of life, as we deal with all the issues that surround us, do you trust the caring, the loving providence of God in your life? Do you trust that as a child of God, he is working out all things for the good of those who love him? Do you trust that God fights for his people? Do you trust that the horrible things in your life that maybe happen to you that you cannot even understand right now, that you may be even questioning God, why did this happen to me? Do you trust that God can use it to display to you his love and goodness? Do you see that God is present with you even in the most ordinary moments of life? Through this story, we are called to see how God works. We are called to trust in his goodness even when we do not know or understand what is he doing in our life. We also see a warning in this text. When we look at the life of Haman, it's clear. Haman's idol, Haman's God, the God of his heart is significance. Haman craves significance. It's not enough for him to just be great and important. He wants others to know and to appreciate his significance. When he was praised, when he's appreciated, his ego was stroked, he was glad and joyful, we see. He was on the emotional high. And likewise, when he was not praised, when he was not bowed down to, he was angry, emotional low. And by not bowing down before him, Mordecai challenges the idols of Haman's heart to the point that Haman says, my significance, my power, my riches, my position, they do not matter as long as I see Mordecai. Mordecai was his trigger. Mordecai and the Jews are the reason why he can't be happy. At least that's what he's telling himself. And Haman thinks that as soon as he gets rid of them, he will be happy. There will be no one there to interrupt his joy and to interrupt his gladness. We see here that great success, riches, power, 
is not enough to satisfy the soul. Even when he had it all, and he was glad to have it, and when he was joyful, it came to a quick end. He was angry when he was not recognized. This powerful man had an incredibly fragile ego. And Haman chose to feed his idol. Haman chose to give in to the rage by building gallows to get rid of Mordecai. Not to see him again, not to be triggered again. And in pursuit to fulfill his craving for praise, craving for recognition, Haman made himself an enemy of God. And the idols of his heart brought him to destruction. That is a massive warning to us. We have so much in common with Haman. The reality is that all of us have idols. Our heart produces idols on a daily basis. And the question for us is how do we deal with our idols? How do you deal with your idols? And if you say, I don't have idols, my question is, what is it that triggers you? What triggers your emotional highs and lows? What are the things that you behold in your heart that when they are stroked, you rejoice? And when they are threatened, you are filled with bitterness and anger. Those things may be a clue to the idols of your heart. Who are the people that you would love to see disappear from your life? Why? What idol are they threatening in you? These are good questions for us to consider, church. Ask yourself, what is it that is causing me to react this way? Why am I filled with anger? Haman had power. He had riches. What else do you need, man? You have everything. Just enjoy life. And he gets stuck on his ego. He gets stuck on Mordecai. And often we are just like Haman. As children of God, we have experienced grace. We have experienced forgiveness. We have been saved from eternal destruction. We have been granted a seat in heaven with Christ. We have a glorious future. An eternal life with riches that this world cannot even comprehend or, 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 or give to us. We are so blessed as Christians. And so often we say, yes, I have these spiritual blessings, but they are worth nothing to me until and we can all fill in the blank. Christ and what he gives me is worthless to me right now. 
until I get security, until I get that new position at work, until I get comfort, recognition, significance, an apology, whatever it is. All of these things that Christ has given to me are worthless until I get. What is the idol in your heart that is not allowing you to see and enjoy Jesus and all of his love and affection for you? We are called to acknowledge our idols, be aware of them, tear them down, to repent, and to enjoy Jesus, and to worship Jesus. He is the only one who can quench and satisfy the cravings of our heart. Look to your God, look to Jesus, and see that he is enough. You do not need your idols. You do not need whatever you're filling in the blank. And lastly, we have an invitation. Coming before God is not like coming before King Xerxes. Esther feared. She and the Jews, they had to fast before coming to God, to, to, to the king. And even then, after they fasted, she was not certain if she will live. Church, our God has an open door policy. His invitation stands to you right now. And our free access to God did not come cheap. It is free to us, but a price was paid. God can extend, eternally he can extend the scepter to you because the fierce judgment that we deserved was laid on his son Jesus. Our access to God was was bought with the blood of Jesus. And so now we can come to him free of anxiety, free of fear, free from thinking, is he going to grant my request or is he going to kill me? Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. That is the promise to us, church. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace, not with anxiety, not with fear, but with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is the promise to you, church. Free access to a God who knows you, who loves you, who who has his affection for you, and who hears your requests and is there to give you help 
and grace in time of need. This is invitation, this is invitation not from the king of Persia. This invitation to us is not from some other leader. This invitation is from the eternal king of the universe to come to him, to receive mercy and grace, to come to him, to be heard, to be loved, to be understood. So come to him as you are and do not delay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises, Lord. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would become aware of the idols that we behold, the idols that enslave us, the idols that bring us to ruin. Lord, help us be aware of them and help us, God, by the power of your spirit to destroy them. Lord, show us Jesus, the glorious king, the loving king who calls us to himself, Jesus who can satisfy the deepest cravings of our heart, Jesus who can understand us. Lord, our hearts were made to worship you, and so I pray that you would make us able to do just that as your church, Father. Help us slay our idols and run to you, God. Run to the throne room of grace where we can receive help and mercy. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you, God, that you are at work in every detail of our life. How mysterious that is, Lord. We do not understand it, but we thank you that we can, we can stand on that promise and know that in the, in, in the hardships of our life, in the moments that we do not understand what is happening, Lord, we can trust you and we can find confidence in the fact that you hold us in your hands. We thank you for that promise, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.